Well, got a room full of um, room full of warriors. <laughs> well, thank you. This is great, and it's always a pleasure to come to this museum. Actually, being an Air Force member, this is the Air Force Museum, and I'd like to congratulate General Metcalf and his and his uh, and his staff for an outstanding job. And one thing they did quite some time ago is they decided to not only just display an airplane, they wanted to put the human touch on it to find out what it was like to the people who flew it and what they did. And, and it, it brings a lot more meaning to, you know, maintaining the historical, the historical significance. <laughs> Maybe I was right to start with. <laughs> the historical significance of what our past was and to remember that. And uh, I want to congratulate you. That was an outstanding job. And being an Air Force guy, I'm always real proud to bring them to my museum and, and show it off to a lot of people. Now, how many warriors do we have in the audience? Raise your hand. Wow. There's more of you. And I want to recognize somebody else here this evening, too. And that is, it's just not the, the, the warrior that goes off with fire on his tail to go off and do mortal combat with his fellow men in support of his country, is that, and I didn't realize this until I got older and my hair got gray, and, also, and I have a sibling that's in harm's way myself, and I realized that there's another thing, another area of people that need to have every bit as much recognition as the warrior that goes off to war, and that is the people that stay at home. And those are the ones, the family members, that sit and worry about that blue car that's going to drive up in their driveway. And if you're a spouse or a parent of somebody that's in harm's way, and you know exactly what I mean about sitting there and waiting for that blue staff car that pulls up in front of your house, that's not going to be very good news. And I think that those are every bit of big a hero in support of this nation's interest is the guy that goes off to war. And I just want to make sure that those of you are recognized for that. Thank you. What we're going to do is going to talk about, what I want to do to start with is put it, is, is try to understand the psychology a little bit about the warrior. And also put it in perspective about the times in Vietnam. And then we'll tell a couple of war stories. And then we'll have a question and answer period that maybe we can talk about something that may interest you or something that obviously I forgot in my talk. That you would be uh, that you'd like clarified. So with that in mind, uh, if you forgive me to talk about myself a little bit, and, and that is, what happened? Uh, how did I end up in Vietnam and being a misty pilot? And about the psychology of war a little bit. And uh, you know, at my age, I grew up as a little kid basking in the in the glory of World War II. And I was always interested in those guys that would climb in those airplanes, those liberators and those flying fortresses that would fly over Nazi Germany when three out of four of them were casualties. And how in the world somebody could do that time after time? If you're the only guy that gets back in your squadron and every, all your other comrades are gone, how in the world do you get in that airplane the next day and go and do that? And I thought, how can anybody do that? You know, what's the, the interesting part? Of how does that happen? But the biggest question that this little kid had is that could little Dickie Rutan do that? And as I grew up, I had to find out the answer to that. I had to find out if I could do that or not. 
And so my mother took me to the first air show that I could ever remember going to and standing there and looking at that big, big jet fighter. I think it was an RF-84F, and that pilot, he was standing there all really hot with his G-suit on and his flying suit on. And I stood there, and I looked up at that guy, and I thought, wow, you know, this guy can't be from any species that I'm a member of. He has to be some other special species to be able to do that. And my mother realized that, and, I, and she says, would you like to do that? And I says, oh, would I? But <laughs> Do you want to do that? Yes, you can. Now, if you're going to achieve, you should never tell yourself. If you think about myself and my brother, you will know that both of those guys achieved something that most people thought was not possible. And my brother says, unless I'm 50% of all the knowledge who will tell me whatever your next project is, is, in, is not achievable, Unless he can find that, he says, well, it's, you know, I didn't shoot high enough. My mother did something really interesting, and I realized that later in later years. And what she did was she did two things, and it's kind of a formula for life. Number one is she found out something that that little kid was really interested in, something he had a passion of. Now, he's a little kid, and he's got a lot of years go by before he ever achieves that great dream. One thing, she identified a goal, and she reminded him of the goal as he grew up. And another thing she did that was really neat is she managed the motivation. If you manage the motivation, then you can achieve anything you can dream about, no matter what you try to do in life. little kid is going to go out and play with his buddies instead of doing his homework, and she'd grab me and say, Dick, remember that F-84? Remember what it would look like at the, at the pointy end of that contrail high in the stratosphere back in the 50s and wonder what it would look like from up there? But I'd say, yeah, okay, I'll do my homework. And so what she did, she managed the motivation. Vietnam, Vietnam, good God in heaven, it's Vietnam. And those of you that have gray hair like I do, you can remember those days. Now, a lot of you already know this. But just try to, let me try to remind you of what it was like. That the, that the state of a warrior back in the early 60s was not something that was looked on high by, your, by the citizens of our country. And all those warriors, and most of them were drafted. They didn't want to go. But because their country called, they went and they served their country, whatever it was at that time. And if you remember that those kids that came home from Vietnam, they weren't received by a grateful nation. They were received by a bunch of long-haired, dope-smoking, flea-infested hippies who spit on them and called them baby killers. That's what they came home to, to put it in perspective. Years later, I was at a, I was at a meeting or at some event that we had in Oklahoma shooting quail or something, and Norman Schwarzkopf was there. Storm and Norman, and there was somebody that made the mistake to come up to that kick-ass general and say that, hey, I really, I really appreciate what you guys did in Vietnam, and I want you to know that I supported you. And you know, I, when I was at home, you know, I just felt the best for you, and I really didn't like what those hippies were doing. <laughs> I can't tell you what that general did to this guy, because I don't want to ever be chewed out that bad. Although he was, the, he was, he was directly the, the focus of the general's rage. But I was standing close enough by, and as we said that 
there's collateral damage sometimes. And he allowed that he was a lot more pissed off at those Americans who stood at home and let those hippies do that to define who this nation was. And you sat at home and did nothing. He says, I'm more pissed off at you than the enemy that we were sent to fight. When I went in the Air Force, right out of high school, back in the days of Elvis Presley, I had dirty jeans that was hanging on the last hair of my butt and a long duck's ass haircut, you know, the crease in the back. And I got off that bus at Lackland Air Force Base in the heat of the summer. And they were really mean to me. <laughs> And I don't know how this guy knew about it that I was chewing gum because when I got off the bus, I was so damn scared. I don't think I was moving anything. And he come up to me and he says, Mr., are you chewing gum? And I says, yeah. And, of course, after we went through the drill about how you answer, <laughs> then he looked at me and he says, swallow it. Oh, my God, do I want to go home to my mama? I mean, what a culture shock. Can you imagine? And nobody briefed me about what it was like to go through pre-flight at Lackland in San Antonio, Texas in the middle of summer. But there was one thing that I remember, and it's called the Code of Conduct. And this is right after Korea, and they had to do something different about how, how you would conduct yourself as a prisoner of war. And so they came out with a thing called the Code of Conduct. And it's about surrender, and it's a lot of different things. But there's one thing that I memorized at the time, and I had no idea the significance of what it said. And I'm sure a lot of you guys with the hair the same color as mine will remember it. And it goes like this. And it says, I am an American fighting man, and I serve in the forces which guard my country and my way of life, and I am prepared to give my life in their defense. Remember that? Now, what is the significance to some kid out of Elvis Presley haircut and some little teenager fresh out of high school that that meant? But boy, I was going to find out what it meant. That you're an American fighting man and you're prepared to give your life in its defense. That's a profound statement. That's a profound code that a warrior would live by. And we were going to find out about that later on. But at that time, it didn't really mean much. And that, that was really interesting. And, you know, I wanted to go home to my mother. And, and, and of the 72 guys that got off the bus that day at Lackland, there's only 12 of us that made it. And not that I was anything really great. The only reason that I made it is a lot of six or seven of the guys that were more courageous than I would, they got up and said, screw you, I'm going home to my mother, and they let them go. Well, I wanted to go down and do the same thing, but I was too scared to walk down to the orderly room to tell them. <laughs> and every time we had a test, on the bell curve, the axe fell literally behind me every single time. But I graduated with that class in NAV school. And then went on to fly uh, backseat F-101s at Klamath Falls and meet tour in Iceland and the F-89. <laughs> then I applied for pilot training. While I was waiting, I got to fly C-124s over the ocean. And during that period of time, I learned a lot about what it was like to fly an airplane. Oh, God, I said the wrong word. Got to stop this. Airplane. Now, you all aware about the new century, the new political speak in the 21st century? Some of you old guys may not know this. 
He said, you, you are not able, you are not authorized to say airplane anymore. You know, we used to call them drones. You know what you call them now? UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. Now, those of you that are going to make the mistake and call all these things airplanes, shame on you. From now on, they will be known as manned aerial vehicles. <laughs> so be really careful about that. But the thing that I really wanted to find out was what was, it, what was going to happen when you found yourself on a two-way firing range the very first time that you're going to be shot at. And I really wondered about that. You know, what would I do when I am in combat and somebody's going to shoot at you? And I made a survey later on, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I figured I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and so of all the 360 guys in our class at five different bases, uh, I had a pretty good, I had a pretty good head start in pilot training, having been a navigator and learned all about the military stuff. And when I went into pilot training, I was actually a civilian flight instructor. And so I was bound and determined that I wanted to go to Air Force pilot training so bloody bad that I didn't want anybody to know I was already a pilot and maybe they would skip something. Now I'm a little kid that liked lollipops. And I wanted to make damn sure that I had an opportunity to lick every part of that lollipop. And I didn't want to miss anything. So I never said a word. But I'll tell you what, I was pretty damn good. <laughs> and I graduated number one in the class. And I told everybody that I was going to get an F-100. In those days, nobody ever said there was going to be an F-100. They don't give it to guys right out of pilot training. It's a difficult airplane to fly. and takes a lot of experience. Pilots to fly F-100s. And I kept saying, I'm going to get an F-100. And I was really arrogant about, about saying that. And when the time came... We all went in a big room, and they opened up the curtain, and all the assignments were up there about. Uh, and I tell them, I says, I don't care. As long as I have one F-100, I'm going to get it because I'm going to be number one in the class. And arrogance go a long way with fighter pilots. <laughs> you know when a fighter pilot comes into the room? Within 30 seconds, he'll tell you. <laughs> Another one is, what do fighter pilots use for birth control? Their personalities. <laughs> so anyway, the curtain came apart, and I looked up there, and there was nobody more surprised than I was. I was shocked. There were two F-100s. And so I got up just like, yeah, I knew it all the time. And I got up and picked out my F-100. And, and I sat down, and I thought, I couldn't bloody believe it. That hadn't happened in a long time. So nobody was more shocked than I was. Went through gunnery school at Luke after graduating. And uh, there was about six of us, and I'll show you a picture here in a minute. But one day I found myself, I found myself in the officer's club at Luke, right in the middle of the war, 1966 or 67. And there was guys coming back from combat and guys going to combat, and there was one hell of a party going on. And I participated in the party for a little bit, but pretty soon I sat over in the corner and I looked and surveyed the whole thing. And I reflected about what happened. Why am I here at this time? And in my pocket, I had a set of orders, F-100, Phuket, Vietnam, and I was going to get to find out the big question of my life. And I surveyed that thing, and I looked back, and I thought about my mom. And I thought about that day at that air show and standing beside that guy from a different species. And I thought, God, look at this. There was no place on planet Earth that I would rather be 
You're standing right here at this time. And now I was going to find out. After survival school and to Vietnam, and I checked in, and now this was the big time. I was going to find out. Very first mission I went on, of course, you're assigned a target, and it's bloody war. This is war. But it, it, seemed, it still seemed like kind of a game to me and so forth. You take off, you fly to the target area, and there's the target. And I roll in on the target, and I look over here, and some son of a gun has the audacity to shoot at me. And the tracers are coming by. Now, what happens at that very moment will define you as a warrior? And some of you that have been in the situation probably will agree with this. Now, what, what are you going to do at that very instant? The tracers are coming right by you. Are you going to duck down behind that 032 aluminum siding? <laughs> I mean, the canopy gives you more protection than that thin aluminum, but, you know, the psychology of head, whatever. Are you going to cry for your mom? Are you going to grow up in a fetal position? Are you becoming totally debilitated by fear? What are you going to do? Now, what I found was almost universal to all the fellow fighter pilots and, and a lot of other people that I talked to, kind of an unofficial uh, survey. The first thing was, I looked over there, and I thought, the audacity of that son of a bitch to shoot at me. <laughs> well, I'll fix you. <laughs> number one, the audacity. Number two is, I'll fix you. Okay, at this particular situation, it was like taking a, a pin gun or a, a, a pin knife to do battle with 15 guys with AK-47s. But he shot at me, I'll fix you. So I rolled in on this other guy. And fortunately, I'm standing here today because my flight lead had enough sense to know, Rutan, what are you doing? He says, I'm going after the gun. He says, what? He says, he shot at me. He says, get the hell out of there. And he saved my life. So now I found out something. As combat went on, I found out something else, too. Is why do the people get in the, get in the airplanes and do this thing over and over again? Now, this is my own theory. I have a theory. And I found that uh, in your body there's, a, there's the adrenaline glands. You know, if you're being chased by a Bengal tiger, you can run really fast and you could normally. And it's adrenaline. And there's a gland and they, the medical people know all about it. But let me suggest that there's another gland in your body. And I think it's back in your neck here someplace. I'm not sure. But it only starts pumping out this endorphin when you're shot at. Like the greatest adventure of all time was the Lewis and Clark expedition. And Meriwether Lewis, after he spent three years on that incredible journey out to the, the coast and back again, he reports to President Jefferson in 1803, I think. And he tells him, he says, the greatest experience, the most exhilarating experience a man can, can have is being shot at and missed. <laughs> That's really exhilarating. <laughs> Now, what happens, this gland only works when you're being shot at. And it's very, it's very uh, addictive. And this gland starts working when you're being shot at. And the more you shoot at, the more it comes into your, pumps through your system. And what it pumps into your system is the most incredible uh, endorphin that you can imagine. And another thing is, it's not only great, it's extremely addictive. Extremely addictive. And I've seen guys fist fights throwing each other's parachute out of the airplane when we come up with a special, extremely high-risk mission. 
the guys were fist fighting to go on the mission. You know, we can't, we take, we take, uh, we count our, up in Opsa, you would count the missions that you'd have. And the guys would sneak in there at night and they would change the number to a lower mission, a lower number so that they could fly more. Now, what is that? Now I'm beginning to understand why those kids could jump in those B-17s and go back and do it again. And that's a warrior. And that's why they go and do that again. You know, what defines a warrior? You know, looking back on these things, there are certain uh, defining things. And, and the curators here have, have uh, recognized that. I'm really impressed with, with what they've done out there. I mean, they, they have focused on some really significant events. And one of them to me is, and, and I kind of like profound statements, people that make simple, profound statements. Like when Kennedy said he was going to go to the moon. We're going to do it because, not because it's easy. We're going to do it because it's hard. That's a profound statement. It defines who we are and what our goals are and what the risk we are to take and do things. Jeremiah Denton, he gets off the airplane at Clark Air Force Base, and that airplane is parked right out there, the Hanoi taxi. And he gets off the airplane, and he sets foot after being tortured for five or six years at the guest of the North Vietnamese. And he steps off, and what does he say? He looked around and he said, I consider it an honor to have had the privilege to serve my country under difficult circumstances. God bless America. He said that he thought it was a privilege and an honor to be able to go and let the North Vietnamese beat the hell out of me for five years. I mean, where do we get people like that? I mean, think about the profoundness of that. And to me, that statement defines all you warriors. And as long as we have people that will go and endure that and consider it's an honor to serve my country under difficult circumstances, that flag will still fly free. There's a guy, his name is Bud Day. I'll talk about him in a little bit. Let me talk about the Misties and where it started. When I got over there, I was flying... I was an F-100 pilot, and we were flying close air support for ground troops, mainly, in South Vietnam. And so we take off with our ordnance load, and we fly out, and we contact the FAC and the little Cessna down there. And I could tell that there was a lot going on down in the jungle. And there was a war going on that, down there, and they needed our close air support. And the FAC, pretty soon it was our turn, and he'd lay a smoke rocket down, and we'd go and drop our bombs, and then we'd want to leave. And I thought, wow. You know, I'm here to drop my bombs, but there's a war going on down there. There's some interesting stuff going on. Why am I leaving? I would like to be part of that for some reason. And then when I first got to Phuket and I checked in, there's a guy named Bud Day. And Bud Day and I went through gunnery school together. And he went to short course. I was a long course. But anyway, he left a couple, couple of months before I did. And he left his family. And his family, his wife, Dory Day, and a couple of, he had some twins and some kids that were kind of small. And they were our neighbors. And when he left, he left Dory with the most credible two junky cars that were not, almost couldn't run. And, and, I, and I spent all my time fixing these damn cars. I says, how could a guy run off and leave his family with that kind of broken down transportation? And when I get to Phuket, same place Bud went, I'm going to go and I'm going to uh, have a little talk with him about that. And so I went up to the Misty headquarters, and I walked in, and it says, where's Bud Day? i got to talk to him. And he says, Bud just got killed yesterday. That's our term for being shot down. Now, Bud Day started the Misty's, 
And Bud Day was our first commander. And he was the first guy to get shot down. And they were down, and they got shot down, and, they, and he was in the backseat checking out a new pilot. And the front pilot, he got a little excited, and he blew Bud out of the airplane. He ejected him. And Bud wasn't ready. He was doing the radio or something, and it tore up his arm real bad. And so he got down, and he got injured. Anyway, both of them were down on the ground in a, in a, in a helicopter. The Jolly Green came to pick him up. And here Bud is in a, is in a crater. And he's hiding out because, you know, they're shooting at him, ground fire. And here comes a helicopter, and he sees him going over there and pick up his, his other pilot. And he turned and he head right for Bud. And as he come to him, he stood up on the side of the thing, and he started waving like this, although his arm was all torn up. And he started waving, and the helicopter literally came right up to him. And nobody in the helicopter saw Bud. He was that close for being rescued. And it turned and left. And boy, what did they leave him to? You know, six, seven years of brutal torture. Bud conducted himself with honor as a prisoner of war, and he was awarded our country's highest honor, the Medal of Honor. But Bud Day was our commander. He was the misty commander. He started that thing. And in his leadership, even though he wasn't there, his courage and leadership was something that we, you know, that sustained us. That our boss was in jail, and we couldn't let him down. And he was our leader. And after we left, we had practice reunions, and we were never going to have a reunion until Bud got out of jail. Then we'd have a real one. So all those years, we had practice reunions, and pretty soon in 1973, he was released, and he came home. And this little small group of people that flew those high-risk missions over North Vietnam, we had one hell of a reunion when our leader got back. But think about that as leadership. Here's the guy that's in prison. He's not ever there. But he was our leader. The Misty thing started out with F-100s. And in fact, uh, uh, we used the two-seat version of the F-100. And here's our gunnery school class. And can you recognize your truly? Boy, a bunch of eager guys going to combat. <laughs> Here's a little Dicky Rutan. <laughs> I thought that was neat about some of the guys that got shot down and killed. And I pointed out that there, there's a, it's, it's myself. And over there is Howard Williams. And Howard Williams was my best friend, and he was a top gun of the class. And I talked him into going to Misty. And he got shot down in his first checkout mission. And he had a gunfight with the people on the ground. And when he ran out of ammunition, they came up to him and chopped him apart and buried him in a shallow grave. And we didn't know about that for almost 20 years after it happened. And then we got to pick up the remains of Howard. And the book that we wrote is called Bury Us Upside Down. Bury Us Upside Down is about myself and Howard Williams. And it starts with his funeral. As we sat there graveside and watched the internment of Howard, whatever they could find him after a jungle animal dug him up and ate most of him, is that it's a great ceremony at Arlington. I mean, if you've ever seen that, it's just very awe-inspiring and fitting of a, of a warrior. And when I last saw Howard, he left. He had a little boy about this big, about six years old. We sat there in graveside and watched the internment of my best friend, Howard. I looked at my side, and Howard was standing there. It was a spitting image of his father, his mannerisms, just like he looked. And I thought, God, Howard would be so proud of that boy. This is Vietnam. 
The demilitarized zone is up here someplace. It's called the Ben High River. And that was a demarcation between South and North Vietnam. Our base was Phuket. We called it something else. You can imagine what we called it. <laughs> Phuket, down here by Quinyon and Pleiku, down in Tukor. And most of our area of operation was in the southern part of North Vietnam into this area. So the missions we flew were by ourselves. And, and that's neat. You know, I'm always kind of a solo guy, and I like to go and do things by myself. And here I didn't have to be a flight leader or a wingman. Uh, we were autonomous. We would take off from Phuket early in the morning. We'd fly up, and we'd, hit, we'd uh, refuel off the tanker. There was our tanker sitting over there. And our mission was from dawn all the way to noon. And we'd cycle in and out of North Vietnam looking for targets, doing a lot of reconnaissance work. And also, when we'd find targets, we'd either mark them or we could round up fighters that would come and hit them. And anyway, that was kind of our mission. Now, what they called is called the camouflage college. And they would try to camouflage things. But uh, it was really funny because, you know, here's somebody that's trying to camouflage their truck. So they'd cut vegetation. There was a lot of vegetation around. But they would cover every square inch. And they would probably stand back after they are done. If they could see a square inch of their truck, they would go over and put something on it. But from the air, <laughs> it was a perfectly square <laughs> vegetation. Now, I don't know that I ever saw a gun physically or saw a truck. But I tell you what, I never missed one either. And it's one thing that they didn't know. We call it the camouflage college. But something they didn't know is that if you take a plant or any kind of leaf, and when, you, when it's right side up, if you turn it upside down, it has a slightly different hue of green. And we'd go over and see the gun sights, and they would put them in perfect Russian-style circles like that, little pits around. And then we'd look at them, and here's six or seven little things that had slightly different colors. <laughs> and then they'd have a road that would run out to them and then kind of disappear. And I says, ah, there it is. And, and from the very first time one of those guys shot at me, I took a lot of pleasure on killing guns, especially if they were good. Now, if they were bad, and we had some bad gunners, and we were up there so much every day, we got to know all the different gun battalions, and we'd give them pet names and things. We had one kid, he was called Kid on the Cars, and he was over in Laos, but he had a single 50 caliber tracer. And I don't know how I ever got up in this little wedge of cars up way up on the top, but every morning we'd come up and say good morning to the kid on the cars. And he would shoot exactly in the opposite direction that we were. Now, if we'd fly around the circle this way, he'd shoot the other way. And so we'd take new guys up there and show them what 50 caliber tracer would look like. And we'd, we'd wave at him, and, and we'd drop box lunches to him and deliver his mail and stuff, but, metaphorically speaking. And we wanted to take care of him. Now, sometimes we would be up there jinking back and forth, and all of a sudden we'd be looking at something and we'd miss a gun sight. And if your belly was up, they would occasionally just open up and shoot at you. With the tracers coming by and the big 37 or 57 millimeter anti-aircraft things, you could actually hear the shock waves as the bullets went by so close. And you'd roll back and, oh, there he is. I miss him. <laughs> well, they knew what the drill was then. Now, as far as I was concerned, we had to take that gun sight out. So you eliminate the good people and you take care of the other ones. <laughs> anyway, when a flight would check in and I'd say, hey, I got an aggressive, highly accurate, uh, prolific gun sight for you to take out, they'd be silent. Radio failure, hello. <laughs> you know, to put things 
to put the Vietnam War in perspective again, one of the first missions in North Vietnam, I flew by, and we always had a little camera. We took a lot of pictures out of the cockpit. And there was a whole bunch of, of lettering on the side of the road. It was, you know, it was about this high, and it was a big, long stream of letters. And, and so I took a photograph of it, and it didn't mean anything to me. And I went back to our interpreter, and he looked at it, and he couldn't really make it out either. So he gave it to a Vietnamese indigenous people. And the next day he came back, and he said what it said was very crude, you know, crudely written. But he says basically what it said. Now think about this. This is in 1967. We went to Vietnam because we had tanks and, and guns and fighter planes. And what did they have? You know, they didn't have hardly anything. Obviously, we could beat them easily. But what this message said in 1967 was profound. And, and the Vietnamese, I think, had a lot of experience with this because they took and kicked five different major powers out of their country for their history. And I don't know why we thought, hey, maybe it's our turn. Hey, we get our butts kicked. Okay, send us in. Anyway, what it said, it says, we will be victorious because you will tire and leave. Holy bananas. I mean, think of the profoundness of that, of who they were and what their, what their motivation was. I mean, they didn't care how many people they lost or how many years it took. And, and all the bombs and planes that you could send over there is not going to really win, ultimately. But somebody missed that. I think his name was, I forget his name, McNamara, something like that. <laughs> Pathetic. That was our mission. We'd cycle in to North Vietnam. We'd stay about an hour because you're low altitude. You're going really fast. <laughs> the guy says, you know, we talk about speed in combat. <laughs> and, and, and what is fast enough in combat? And, and I've, been, you know, I've been trying to outclimb all the tracers around me, and I think I was going in molasses, and I looked down, I'm going 500 knots. And, man, that wasn't fast enough when you're getting shot at. And so here's enough speed. If you're a warrior going into combat, you come in at the speed of light. And you kick their butts, and then you leave before they see you coming. <laughs> now you are fast enough in combat. <laughs> However, they did something different. They're doing it at the speed of light, but they're doing it a lot different. You know what? Uh, and there's a profound change coming in your warrior class now in the Air Force. And that is the warrior sits in a nice box drinking coffee in a box at Creech Air Force Base outside of Las Vegas. And he's flying combat missions halfway around the world. And he's doing it at the speed of light, right? Light speed up, down, turn, identify, launch a missile. I don't know what's going to happen. Because how can you be a warrior if you don't get shot at? I'm trying to figure that out. And the thing that really bothers me is that maybe, maybe we'll lose the courage to fly through the flak in support of your flag. And if nobody has the courage to do that, and we have this class of warrior that when the time comes when they need to do that, maybe nobody knows how to stand up and do that. I don't know what's going to happen. But I tell you what, there's a profound change going on. But what a great mission. You're in there all by yourself. <laughs> and I, I remember you fly up there, and it's, it's night. And, and every morning at Phuket, there was a misty. His afterburner would light, and that solo airplane would climb out into the mist about 3 o'clock every morning. And he'd fly up there, and he'd refuel at night. And just as the sun was coming up, or just as twilight would come over, he'd come back, back off the tanker, and he would turn towards North Vietnam. Now, 
we flew with each other so much, nobody really said too much, whether you're front seat or back seat. But I think that every one of them knew, and you did a double check to make sure your lights were off and your transponder was off and the target mill site was set, your chin strap was connected and all your parachute straps would be on. And you remember the breakfast that you had to gag down at 3 o'clock in the morning, the jungle food. And I'd look at the powdered eggs and stuff, and I would think, Dick, this may be the last decent meal you're going to have. So you better eat it no matter what. We'd back off the tanker and turn and descend from 20,000 feet to hit the coastline right on the deck. And it was, it, was, it was really eerie and calm. And you sit there, and once everything was done, you had a handful of minutes before you penetrated North Vietnam. And you wondered... God, I wonder what the next five hours of my life is going to be like. And it was really kind of eerie and kind of scary, tingly. However, and they always saw us coming, and the whole coastline would open up with ground fire. And when that first tracer came at us, that little endorphin right here, right here, boy, he started pumping. And then, baby, <laughs> war was on, and it was combat. And if you think about the psychology of combat, uh, you know, all testosterone-laden males, and of course I date myself. But anyway, there's a part of this. The human beings, we're all competitors. You know, we compete in cards, and we compete in sports, and we do a lot of competition. That's the essence of who we are and, what, and how we live. And, uh, and I think it's an, a, an animal instinct because, like the American Indian, he would go to combat, and if he'd come back with the most scalps as a big warrior... His, you know what his reward was? He got to breed with the better females. And so maybe, there's some, maybe there is some of that instinct in you. But I tell you, in the world of competition, in human competition, the epitome, the pyramid, the ultimate in competition is wearing your mortal combat with your fellow men. Because the competition is if you lose, you lose your life. And there's something about that little combat thing that's in your back of your neck. It starts pumping. And boy, you're off to the races. Another thing, you think that that cockpit that you sit in is sanctimonious, that that thing is, is golden, and nobody is going to penetrate that. Now, my airplane got hit a lot of times, and one time fatal, but I never physically got hit. I guess it worked. This is... This photograph here is right up in this area. There's a river called the Quang Chi River Valley. It's a major river that came up off the coast of North Vietnam or the Gulf of Tonkin. And right up there, there was a truck parked one day. <laughs> and that was my nemesis on my 105th mission. And I was in the back seat. I was, I was on a champagne flight with Chuck Shaheen, a guy who was, we called him a crazy Arab. That was his last mission, and he was going to put on a, put on a big show. See, he has to come back with a big hero last mission. And there, was, there were five guys at a party that night or a couple days before, and it was their going away party, and Chuck was one of them. As it ended up, that all four, uh, five of the four guys were shot down out of that party. So after that, they says, okay, you guys are not going to know when your last mission is, so I don't want you to go out and shine in your butts for the last mission. Now, you'd think it's your last mission. Give me, you know, give me a milk run or something. Give me an easy one. But that's not what happened. The guys did a whole bunch of really stupid things. Remember that endorphin pumping? <laughs> anyway, we flew up the valley, and there was a truck parked beside the river and a big cars. And, and the fighters we put in, they missed the damn target. And they were our own guy, our own other F-100 pilots. And I, so what we did is we ended up in the weeds strafing the trucks. 
None of the guys we put in could hit it, so, the, so we scraped it. And there was a big bang and a big fire behind me, and, and we pulled up. And I always thought that the F-100 could give me 20 seconds. When I got hit, it would fly me 20 seconds to a place that I could always turn toward the jungle and get out or at least make it to the Gulf of Tonkin. We pulled off that day, and I looked around, and 20 seconds were not going to get us any place. And I thought, the rat up in the Hanoi Hilton, here we come. Had a premonition about that. Anyway, the airplane burned and burned and burned, and Chuck Shaheen and I bailed out right there, right off the coast. Just barely made it. And on the way out burning, because I'd done two tours in Misty, and <laughs> I says, please, if they just get out and bail out, I'm not coming up here anymore. And nobody was ever concerned, and I cowered it out early because I'd done two missions, or two, 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 almost two full tours in Misty. Anyway, that's what happened. We got out there, ejected, got in the raft, <laughs> got picked up. Kind of an interesting side note is that... Uh, we had an F-105 pilot down one day, down in this area, and he had ejected, and I was the only guy that could find him. And I just saw his parachute go into the jungle when it disappeared. And so I was really the only guy that knew right where he was. I got there just, just in a split, split second. And I came around again, and the parachute was gone, but I kind of memorized where it was. And so I pulled up, and the only way I could talk to this guy was in a dive bomb pass. And I'd dive at him like that, and I could ask him a question and release the mic button, and he would answer you know, I got a broken back. Come and get me. Cry, cry, cry. So you pull off, and we call him and call him, no answer. And I dived. So I was really the only guy that could talk to him. Okay, so we get the forces up, and the Jolly Greens come in, and the, and the Sandys come in. And kind of a long story short, uh, he, he got shot down just before night. So anyway, I talked to him, and it was too late to get any forces in, so I put him to sleep. Put him to sleep. Yeah, how do you sleep in a condition like that? He says, go to bed. Uh, hang in there, and we'll be back at first light to pick you up. And he said, okay, good night. And, and this has happened many times with the Misty that we're on scene when, when airplanes get shot down. And about half of the guys that I could talk to on the ground initially, we come back the next morning, and there's no answer. But some of them we get to get them out, and that's kind of neat too. Anyway, this particular guy, he was down there in the jungle, and we put him to bed, and we went back, and we arranged all the, all the forces that night, and and after being up at 3 o'clock the morning before and flying all day and into that night and then with three hours of sleep trying to organize this thing, we get in the airplane the next morning and I come across him and with the afterburner on and I pull up and do the dive bomb pass at him and I call him and he's still there. He's still complaining about his back and he can't move. I says, okay, McDonough, we'll get you out. And so all that morning they put in two helicopters that got shot up. They found him during the night and they set a flak track up for him. The helicopter would come in to hover. They'd open up and just shoot the devil out of them. They shot down an A-1 and killed the pilot. So we lost three airplanes trying to get him out. And it was a big battle all that morning. And uh, I was so anxious about trying to get him out that uh, I couldn't understand why the Jolly Greens didn't come across the border into North Vietnam and pick him up. And, and I said something really in, inappropriate. Uh, uh, something like, why don't you guys get up here and earn all those medals you got or something like that? Not, not appropriate, right? Well, later I found out that the reason they didn't come up is that there was some snot-nosed brat that was on the staff of President Johnson, and he was in the basement at the White House, and nobody wanted to wake him up. He was the only guy that could get permission for the Jollies to come into North Vietnam. Isn't that a hell of a war to fight? 
kind of crap is that? Well, I was really, was really sad that I said that. Now, the Jollies, they didn't take that too lightly. And they went around and found out who that Missy bastard was that said that by name. And they knew who he was. But fortunately, the Misty pilots didn't fly with their name. They flew with different call signs. And so they really couldn't identify who they were. So anyway, two Jollies got shot up and A-1 got shot down. We are trying to put forces in. It was really unorganized. It was just really a, a goat rope all that morning. Now, the agreement that we have is if I'm down on the ground or any pilot and he has a radio and he can talk to somebody and he's physically free... We will do anything. We'll pay, no ex- we'll pay no expense to get you out, no matter what. And that's the, the agreement. If I can talk to you and I'm free, you will always come and get me, and you will absolutely never abandon me, even if you have to dig a canal and sail the Missouri up to get you. And if that agreement, I says, okay, that's a pretty good deal. I'll go up and fly your combat for you. That's my agreement. And so at noon that day, there was a call come from Crown, and Crown was rescue headquarters. They coordinate all the, all the rescues. And they come up and he says, all right, pull the forces out. Pull the forces out. Uh, abandon the search or, or abandon the rescue. <laughs> what? You've got to be kidding me. What do you mean we're going to pull out and leave this guy there? There's no way they're going to do that. That's not my agreement. He's still talking to people. I don't care what it is. We never, never leave a warrior. It's part of the code. And he says, nope. Uh, so I asked him, it says, well, who made the decision? I said, Crown did. I said, I want to know who in Crown made that. I want to know who the individual was, little Captain Rutan. <laughs> and they came back after my insistence, and they identified that there was a general officer in Saigon who made that decision. He says, we've lost too many airplanes, and the chances of getting them out are pretty remote, and we're canceling the, and we're going to cancel, we're going to cancel the rescue attempt. And I thought, there is no fine way that that's going to happen. How could they do that? They violated the code. What is this? Who the hell is this guy to cancel this thing? And so then all of a sudden I realized, guess who's going to have to tell Don on the ground that we're pulling out and leaving him? Broken back, can't move, what the North Vietnamese are going to do to him? I'm the only guy that can talk to him. And it's up to me to tell him that we're leaving. And I says, oh, yeah? Well, if that general... If he made the decision, he can bloody well tell me the words to use that I'm going to tell the guy that you're leaving one of your fellow warriors behind. You think the words up. You made the decision. And you make the words, and I'll have to relay it to him. And everybody caught up on this. said, okay, yeah, we'll ask him too. And all the forces that were there waiting, they thought, wow, that's pretty neat. We're going to wait and see what the general said. Okay, a handful of minutes went by. The afternoon Misty come up, checked in. I briefed him, and I was really sad because we're going to leave somebody up there that's still talking. And I fly back to Phuket and land. And I'm pretty, dis, you know, pretty shook up that somebody was going to leave somebody. And I was thinking about the hell with you guys. You know, if you broke that code, you know, let the general go and fly the damn mission. So I'm sitting in the bar about sunset, at the end of the bar all by myself, lamenting this situation over a beer. And the guy that relieved me, Wells Jackson, he walked in the door and he saw me sitting over there. And he had a smile on his face. I thought, God, how can you smile at a situation like this? And Wells walked over, and I looked at him, and he says, too bad about Scotch, 03. He says, Dick, they got him out. I says, what? You guys got Scotch out? He says, yeah. It seems the general could not come up with the words. 
He can't come up with the words to tell a fellow warrior he's going to abandon him. Now, when they came back that afternoon to get him, the two guys that were in the Jolly Green got the Air Force Cross, but they really should have got the Medal of Honor. If there was ever a Medal of Honor to be given, it should have been to those two guys. And the guy that was flying the HH-3 and the PJs, the pilot was a Coastie, we call them. They were exchange officers. Coast Guard came and fly with the Air Force on these rescue missions. Neat guy. His name is Mixon. No, it wasn't. Mixon picked me up. Anyway, the name's not important. If I could remember it, I was. And unfortunately, the man's not alive anymore because I wanted to thank him and, and meet a hero. But the PJ, brand-new kid, three-striper, just out of PJ school. He just got in Vietnam. He'd been there four days. This was his first mission. And they went over and realized when they got into the area, now they weren't shooting. Nobody was shooting at them yet. They all knew that they shot and the helicopter got away. Now they're going to wait until they got the hook down and they can't get away. And then they're going to open up at him. And that was a plan. And this was really neat. And I got it on tape, and, and it, it, it bleeds your heart out to hear this guy. Anyway, he comes in. He hovers over. The guy's hurt on the ground. So uh, uh, Sergeant Tanny is his name, Sergeant Tanny. He gets on the hook, and he goes down into the jungle. And then he, he, he lets the hook off, goes up in the air. And then he hunts around for Madonna, Don, the guy, the pilot with the broken back. And he finally finds him. And then he vectors the helicopter over. He says, forward, forward. It's all on tape, really neat. And there's other things happening with the rescue forces, and there's 37-millimeter dropping lobs of ammo and, or anti-aircraft in on them. But anyway, they're down there, and the guy's into a hover, and he, he pulls over, puts the penetrator down, and they put it down, and, and Sergeant Tanny, he gets a hold of Madonna with a broken back and everything, and he gets him on that little paddle down and the little strap around you and stuff. And then and, and the tape is great. Unbelievable. And then Sergeant Tenney says, okay, I got him. Pull me up. You know, everything's routine going on. And a handful of time later, Sergeant Tenney grabs, he's on the radio again, and he's screaming. And in the background, you can hear an intense automatic weapons fire. And what Tenney is saying, he says, cut me loose, cut me loose, take it out, take it out. Cut me loose, cut me loose, take it out, take it out. And so he's hanging in this thing as it's slowly coming up through the hundreds of foot of jungle jungle canopy, he's hanging on the bottom of this thing, and he's screaming to the helicopter to cut him loose. Take it out, take it out. Now, as soon as they started up, and as soon as Tanny called on the radio to take me out, they opened up because they were all around him with automatic weapons, zeroed in on the helicopter. And the guy's name was Don Ingen, the helicopter, the coasty. He sat there in a hover, and they blew his windshield out. There was rounds coming through. They punctured all the fuel tanks. There was hydraulic fluid and fuel pouring down and plexiglass raining down on the airplane and hydraulic fluid. And he sat there just like it was a Sunday afternoon in Hubbard with his finger on that little switch, bringing the guys up out of the jungle. And, and Tanny's screaming, cut him loose, cut him loose, take it out, take it out. Anyway, they got him up above the jungle. They translated over, landed at the rock pile where there's a medevac, and they got him out. The airplane was shot up so bad it never flew again. Incredible story. And I got to meet Sergeant Tanny years later at Hurlbird, and he was in the club, and I said, wow, Tanny's there. I want to beat this guy that had the courage to say something like that. And just typical of a PJ, a, a warrior like that. And I congratulated him, and I told him about you know, who we were and what we did. And he looked up at me, and he says, oh, no, sir. He says, no, you don't understand, sir. He says, I was hanging there, and I was looking up, and I saw the helicopter being shot to pieces. And he says, I'm no hero. I just didn't want the damn thing falling on me. 
I says, oh, sure, Sergeant Tanny. I says, you wear that medal proudly because it's an honor to meet you. You're a real true hero in my estimation. And when I got shot down off the coast, <laughs> so I'm off the coast, you know, I'm looking at the bad guy land and stuff, and I'm wondering when the helicopters are going to come. And about three hours later, they did come over the horizon. And one of them broke off and landed. Now, see, I remember what I said about those helicopter guys. <laughs> I thought, God Almighty, if they knew it was me, they'd throw me out. <laughs> so anyway, they landed and picked me up. And so we take off and we head for a couple-hour flight back to Da Nang. And I'm sitting in the back now. Now, my combat is over. I've, I've totally relaxed now. And, and there's no more combat for me. I'm done. I made it. I'm alive. I didn't think I was going to be alive. And I sat back, and I almost went to sleep in the helicopter. In fact, I did later. But I thought, maybe I ought to go up in the cockpit and say, you know, hi, guys. Thanks for coming and getting me. <laughs> and so very reluctantly, walked up, and I stuck my head through the companionway. And the two guys are sitting there, these old crusty, I mean, talk about old crusty uh, helicopter pilots. These guys are something else, a different breed. <laughs> and this one guy looked up at me, and he looked at my name tag. With a <laughs> But he says, Rutan, you son of a bitch, they finally got you. Ha! <laughs> and I was really relaxed because he wasn't going to throw me back. <laughs> but later on, I found out the truth about that. But the fog of war in combat is, is an interesting thing. <laughs> Looks different, doesn't it? Anyway, we had to go to Hellhead. We were flying the dangerous missions up there. And you talk about a bunch of guys who didn't have any, anything for uh, Air Force rules or, or uniforms or, or forging papers to go in extra R&Rs and all the other crap we did. <laughs> Nobody messed with us. I says, hey, if you don't like it, you go fly those missions. Anyway, we had a rocket pod down here that said seven Willie Pete rocket, rockets on it that we could use for marking. We could fire them individually. And, and, and my outfit <laughs> was kind of unique because I had a... A Tom Mix uh, leather belt, you know, a, a pistol belt. And on the right side down there, most guys had their 38s in their vest. I put my 38 down on my leg. And see right there? there's a, It's a rawhide string to hold the, the butt of it down. So you talk about being a cowboy with his go-to-hell hat on. I had a quick draw of that 38. Why? <laughs> Real cowboy. Anyway, the radio was really important, so we carried two radios in the vest. And we knew that some guys were up there a long time, and I didn't want my batteries to go dead. So I, all the guys carried three or four batteries in their, in their G-suits down here. And so I think that we were head, so heavy when we went to the water without an arm preserver, we could keep right on going. <laughs> anyway, that was the get-up that we flew. Here's one of our commanders, Stanley Man Mamlock. He's called Stanley Sopcock, we called him. And he didn't really want to come up to fly our mission, but once he got up there, he fell in love with it. And we fell in love with him because he was really a great leader. But anyway, if you look down here, there's a hole in the horizontal stab. But a 37-millimeter round came up through that, and it got, you know, they have a delay on it, so they want to blow up inside the airplane. Since the skin is, anyway, it went up, and it blew up about three feet high, and it sieved the whole back of the airplane. And, uh, of course, got to take a picture of the combat damage. We, we pulled into the chocks that day after this mission. And uh, they activated the Air National Guard. So these guys were just coming in from the States, and they pulled in the DRM area, and they had their white helmets and stuff. And they're looking around, and they open the canopy, and they take the first whiff of Vietnam, gag. 
And we pulled in right beside him. And here's these old two crusty guys in this airplane with their big handlebar mustache. And so, so I clicked my mic button and I got their attention, one guy's attention. And I looked at him. He looked at me. And I went like this for your eyes and then put the slab up and turned around and looked back like that. And the guy turned around and he looked at me and he looked back and he looked straight ahead. And he never moved after that. He says, holy sugar, boy, what's going to happen now? <laughs> anyway, you can see the mustache doesn't satisfy 3510. Is that 3510 they still have? The vermilion of your mouth, all that other crap. <laughs> anyway, we have 100 missions, 100, not 100 missions, because 100 missions to Missy didn't mean anything. We didn't get to go home early or get a counter. Anyway, here's Carol Williams on one of his champagne party after one of his flights, and that's Dick Rutan. God, I wish I was that skinny now. <laughs> anyway, here's a, here's a group, and I show you this picture for a couple reasons, is that a small group of guys got together and took a photograph. Remember I told you about Howard Williams, my really good buddy that got shot down and chopped apart? And uh, there's Dick Rutan hiding out over there. Here's a group of guys that were there at that time, a little small group of people, just a small little outfit that, that we, we did the very interesting missions. Lanny Lancaster got shot down. This guy here, Brian Williams, was with Howard Williams when they got shot down, and, of course, Howard got killed. Brian got rescued. Here's Mick Green, the guy that I flew my first combat mission up there with in North Vietnam. Boy, was that an eye-opener. Anyway, there's Jonesy Jones. He was the first guy to fly 100 missions, and he got shot down in his 100th mission. But he went and got rescued. But he got back, and he says, he says, if I didn't, I can't get credit for 100 missions because I didn't return the airplane. <laughs> so anyway, he flew one more mission and uh, to get his. Uh, P.K. Robinson. P.K. Robinson, we flew together. <laughs> uh, he was, ended up as a prisoner of war. He made a mistake of going back again and flying an F-4 Phantom. Yeah. Anyway, he got shot down over North Vietnam and became a prisoner of war. Don Shepard, he wrote the book called Bury Us Upside Down. It really is an excellent book about this whole thing in detail. And Theo and Reisinger, Reisinger is in the picture, and I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, Hog Piner got shot down. Charlie, but anyway, who is this? Lanny Lancaster, it's his, on his 100th mission. He's really a character. Anyway, it's really neat because you get to drink champagne at the ends of the ramp occasionally when somebody finishes their mission. I don't know. You won't know who those guys are anyway. Anyway, we flew the F-100 off the two-seat, and uh, the front-seat pilot was his mission, and he would fly the mission, and he was the mission commander, and the guy in the back was the secretary. And we do all the work about checking the fighters in, recording all their ordnance, finding out if they hit the target or not, and then did you know, re a lot of reconnaissance and photographs. So both of us were really busy. And to keep this thing away from the commander and the co-pilot BS, every time, every other mission, you swap seats. And because of that, the guy in the front, it's his mission. Boy, he's getting all excited about doing this stuff. And if you're sitting in the back watching this for a while thinking, hey, <laughs> that's enough. You know, let's get these guys out of here. It's not worth it anymore. So we had a really a good relationship. Anyway, another thing is on display. This is, this is really neat. Uh, here's, a, here's an airplane. That the photograph was taken of this airplane over North Vietnam on a combat mission. And you notice the tail numbers, 837. 
Notice the tail number up there, 837, on this one. Ed Reisinger flew his last mission, 67th mission, and Dick Rutan right there is looking at a hole in the horizontal stabilizer. He took a small arms round through the stabilizer. And that's Brian Williams. He got shot down with my good buddy, if you remember. Anyway, it's a really neat picture, and I'm really glad this was taken because guess what? 837 with the rocket pods in the same tank. The actual airplane is on display. I mean, think about that. I mean, what a, gr a great job. Somebody, and, and they told me the story about somebody found this airplane and knew which one it was. And I think, I stand there and look at that thing. I says, I flew combat in that thing. We probably took some rounds in it one time or another. And there it is. It's on display in this museum. And there's a great, there's a great story there about the photograph and, and a lot about the Misty's. And, and, and what they're trying to do here is put a human touch on it. I mean, you can look at an old F-100 sitting on, a, sitting on a museum someplace, but if they tell what it did in the human, and they put it in a human perspective, it's so much more incredibly valuable to the display. Congratulations, gentlemen. <laughs> now, how many people recognize this patch? There you go, and it's a, uh, it was very popular with the F-105 guys. You figured it out yet? Now, little Dicky Rutan got shot down on his 105th mission. So it's supposed to say 100 missions in an F-105. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty neat patch. And so I stole it from the F-105 guys, and I changed that number to that number. And everybody looks at it and just assumes it's a 100-mission 105 patch. And I tell them no. By the way, this is a unique patch. There's only one, there's only one patch and one guy in the world that can, that can wear the patch because nobody flew 105 missions in an F-100. <laughs> anyway, the Misty logo and North Vietnam. But anyway, I kind of stole it from that. You know, I'm a, if I know anything, I'm a patriotic guy. I love, I'm a, a fierce patriot from my country. And after I was, I was in the sidelines of watching somebody be chewed out from Norman Schwarzkopf, after experiencing that, I made a vow to myself about people that sit on their ass and let a bunch of people define my country. And I made a promise at that time. I said, never in my life will I allow anybody to disgrace my precious flag in my presence without me doing something about it. There was no way. If you want to disgrace my flag, I'm going to come and you're going to, I'm going to read to you from a special book that I have about the meaning and significance of that flag. Anyway, so I painted up my, my home-built airplane. It's called a Bearcoot, so it's Bearcoot. You can see right there on the nose? <laughs> I told you that fighter pilots were egotistical to no end. Wow. The meaning of a lot of things. And all of you know who this is, what this is, and where it's located. And that old gray-beard warrior has two of his grandchildren sitting on his knee. And he's pointing to a name that's on that wall. Howard Keith Williams. And I go to Washington, D.C. very often, and I make a point of doing two things that I will never fail to do. First thing I do when I get to Washington, D.C., I go to the wall. And those six people, my really dear friends, have their name on that wall. 
And I go down there and I rub my hands across their name. And I thank them for their and I thank them for their I thank them for their sacrifice. And because of their sacrifice, I was able to live a full life. And the next thing I do is I go to the National Air and Space Museum and look at the Voyager hanging in there. <laughs> and I look up and say to that airplane, you know, I wish I had time to tell you the Voyager story, but I stand there and I look up at that airplane and I think, you know, I built that thing with my own hands because we never had any money. Although we turned down $2 million worth of tobacco money, told them they didn't have enough money. I stand there and look up at that thing and it says to myself, or out loud, I built that son of a gun and I flew it around the world. And my experience after the Voyager flight was a bunch of lawyers and Hollywood agents took two naive people, incredibly naive about the world, outside of the military. They stole everything we had. And I realized the only thing that was really important is that I could stand in the National Air and Space Museum in our nation's capital, and I could look up and say those words. And none of those damn lawyers or agents, they couldn't steal that. And that was the only thing that actually mattered. Our, our leader, Bud Day, Medal of Honor winner. If you want to read his book, it's called Return to Honor. He was the only guy to escape from North Vietnam into South Vietnam. And he was standing in the, at the edge of the Special Forces camp in Con Tien, just south of the de demilitarized zone. Some of you know where Con Tien is? He was standing down there looking up at the Marines guarding that thing and trying to figure out how he was going to get in there. Because you don't walk up to a Special Forces camp <laughs> from the woods. They frown on that. So he's standing there, and there was two young teenagers that had AK-47s, and they caught him. And he says, I have an appointment with my wife for R&R &R in Honolulu, Dory Day, next week, and I'm damn well not going to miss that appointment. And so he took off running, and they shot him. Hit him in the leg and in the arm, flipped him over, and hauled him all the way back to Hanoi. and beat on him for five years. Now, two times, he was standing there looking at that camp so close to freedom and rescue. And he stood on that bunker that day, that crater, and he looked at the helicopter that just didn't happen to see him so close. But he didn't make it. Bud and Dory Day. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but Dory Day did a lot of work with uh, our government. <laughs> our government at that time, they just wanted to ignore the prisoners. They just wanted to forget about them. They were a pain in the neck. And she went... And she brought that the plight of them out and did a whole bunch of work to get our government to get off their tail and do something about that. Anyway, here's the old graybeard guys. The guy got shot down with. He got shot down with. There's old Dick. Don Shepard wrote the book, Our Commander. The guy that got shot down with my best buddy, prisoner of war. Anyway, incredible how much of people, you know, to be in that little outfit. Jack, that's that picture that I was telling you about. Anyway, Hinksland came out and he wanted to do a painting of, of Vietnam. And, and there's the Misty putting in a smoke rocket with anti-aircraft fire. And there's the old 100, 105 missing pack <laughs> and the guy with the go-to-hell hat on and the funny mustache. Anyway, I thought it was kind of nice, nice rendering. Various upside down. The, uh, the book defines what it is. And, and it says, how do you... You know, why is a book called Bury Us Upside Down? And then when I read the book, I, 
and I read the book, I realized why he named it, and he couldn't name it not, nothing else. But the book starts with the funeral, the interment of Howard Williams and, and so forth. And it talks about five guys, of which I'm one of them, I guess. And, and it also talks about those five guys, or six guys, they, uh, they went back to North Vietnam about 30 years later. Uh, to go, you know, all the warriors returned to the battlefield and, and try to remember what it was like and so forth. And I wanted to do that too. So I rounded up these guys and we be- went back to, to North Vietnam <laughs> and to go, in the, to go to the battlefield. And I wanted to stand where that damn truck was from their perspective. And there was another, there was some other battlefield that, that a lot of people got killed in. And I wanted to go and visit those sites too. <laughs> And so this was a solemn thing. You know, here's these five warriors, and every time I would penetrate North Vietnam, it was a really a strange feeling. It was a very eerie feeling. I wondered what was going to happen. This is enemy territory. And they were shooting at us all the time. And so we drove up Route 1 from Saigon up to Hanoi as we crossed the Ben Hai River at the old demilitarized zone. There's a bridge there, and two bridges, and one of them is an abandoned railroad bridge. And so I had, to, had the guy stop the van, and I said, I'm not, walking, I'm not driving across this bridge into North Vietnam for the first time. I said, gentlemen, let's get out. And so we went over the abandoned railroad bridge. I said, gentlemen, come to attention. Line abreast. Forward, march. And we marched line abreast into North Vietnam. But I'll tell you what, it was a spooky feeling. <laughs> and not to be too crude, but war is war. And sometimes... Um, Strong language is part of combat. That's how people deal with the horrors of war. (laughs) But we all did something in unison that we wanted to do for for the last 30 years. (laughs) As we came across the bridge and we stepped foot on the soil of North Vietnam for the first time, we all did a right wheel off the road. And we all urinated on North Vietnam. Then we got back in the van and drove up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I tell you what, we were rock stars when we got back there. Now, this is off the main road and back into this combat area where our AO was. Uh, they hadn't seen any Americans at all. And you talk about rock stars. We'd go into these little villages and these little marketplaces, and we were Americans. And they thought we were really something special. And uh, the reception that we had. One thing I found is that the people had nothing. But they were really proud, hardworking people. They were very innovative and creative with what they had. You see the women walking down those little dirt roads or on a bicycle, and you think that they just come out of a, a Walmart store with uh, beautiful clothes on. Very proud of what they had. Even the villages that were out of electricity with dirt floors and stuff, it was all, all positioned very beautiful. And the stuff that they did with almost nothing was just really incredible. And I realized I don't think we could have beat those people. Our drive up the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we found storage areas that were huge and massive and things that we never saw. And I don't think we stopped 10% of all the supplies that were headed for South Vietnam. Not even 10%. And I think about all the guys that died on the ground and in the air to try to stop that with absolutely almost nil effectiveness. It was really kind of sad. Don Shepard, there was a big... uh, in the Buddhist style, there was a big cemetery that was a brand new cemetery that just built up, and they wanted to recognize their warriors. 
I mean, it was their country, and they told all the stories from their point of view, especially the museums, about the, the atrocities and the horrors of war. And the guys would say, that isn't true. That didn't happen. I says, hey, guys, cool it. <laughs> he says, if you win the war, if you win the game, you can paint the ball any color you want it. So we went to this Buddhist cemetery. It was laid out. It was a massive thing over acres and acres of hillside in North Vietnam. And in the Buddhist style, they have a, every grave is a little plot about this big, and it kind of stands above the ground about that high, and it's got dirt on it. And at the end of it has a little plaque. And the little plaque would say, would say the name of the individual, his date of his birth, and the location and the date that he died. Write his name, date of born, date of birth, and the location and the date that he died. And we were out there walking, and, and General Don Shepard, we were walking through the cemetery, and I saw Don way over there, and he was standing, and he was looking at one grave. And he stood there for the longest time. And I went over to him, and I says, Don, what is it? He says, Dick, look at this. And it looked like the hundreds and thousands of other graves that were there. And he says, look at that, Dick. I says, yeah, what is it? And he says, Dick, I know. He says, I remember the date of my last mission, and I know exactly where I flew. He says, Dick, I probably killed this kid. And it was really profound to Don to put that in perspective on that day. And, that, and I'm really glad we went back to North Vietnam and have a totally different perspective about those people and who they are and their willingness to succeed and work. And uh, it's a tribute. Now, a lot of you have visited countries that I call the third world S-Hulk countries. And, and these countries are like that because the people that live there are bloody lazy. They don't care. But let me tell you something. Vietnam is not one of those cases. Those people are doing incredible things with almost nothing. And uh, their long-term future is, is very... In fact, you go into a store and go into a clothing store. You guys ever go shopping with your wife through a clothing store? I did a couple times. And I, I go around and look at all the labels on all the things, where they're made. <laughs> a lot of them are made in Vietnam, for crying out loud. Wow. Various upside down. The last paragraph. The last paragraph of the book says, it talks about these old six warriors that went back up, to, up at the, uh, the Rex Hotel. The Rex Hotel was very famous during World War, World War, during the Vietnam War, and they had all the press conferences and all the dignitaries stayed at the Rex Hotel, and it had a really nice restaurant up on the roof. So we're sitting up there, and we're, we're talking about old times, about a, a government that sold out an ally in the middle of the war, and about how, the, how they conducted the war. And, and we all agreed that even understanding all that, that given the chance, we'd probably all do it again. And then as the evening closed down and they were trying to clear the tables and we found ourselves the only one, uh, one of the Missy stood up and he said, gentlemen, a toast. And he raised her glasses and he says, when our flying days are over and from this world we pass, May they bury us upside down so the whole world can kiss our ass. <laughs> and the last sentence of the book, it, the last sentence of the book, it says that the six missies left Vietnam the next morning. As the airliner taxied out for takeoff, they looked out one of the windows, and there was a six... <laughs> Position 57 millimeter anti aircraft sight 
Only this time it was not pointed at them. It's a great book. And it, it depicts not only the combat that we did, but it depicts a lot of the government and a lot of the things after, how they went back afterwards to try to find our guys. And they found all of them except two guys, Overlock and McElhannon. And they went up missing one day, and they disappeared from the surface of the planet. We never knew what happened or never found their remains. How are we doing on time? There was, there was one general officer to die in the whole 10-year conflict. One general officer died in combat. And I was sitting right on his wing when he died. His name was General Worley. And of all the SAC generals, <laughs> fighter pilots don't think a whole lot of SAC guys, <laughs> the bomber guys. Anyway, the whole war was run by a bunch of SAC guys, SAC World War II generals. And, and they couldn't understand why the fighters had to dive at the target. They didn't understand that. He says, well, you know, why don't you just fly over and drop your bombs like we did in War II? <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff like that. Anyway, there was one fighter pilot. His name was Bob, Robert Bob Morgan. Morgan. Robert, that was the Memphis Bell pilot. This guy's name was Robert uh, Worley. <laughs> Bob Worley, Robert Worley, and he was one of the fighter pilots among all the general officers down there. Uh, let's see. Now, I want to play the video. I want to play the audio of, of watching him burn alive in a cockpit. But here's how the story went. Uh, the Misty, or we were just off the tanker. We went out to refuel one day, and we're just coming off the tanker, and we heard, we heard him call Mayday, and it was strobe zero one. one and, and he, would, he says, we just took a hit in the caisson area, and, and we're coming out feet wet, and uh, we're climbing to flight level 200. And I heard that. came off the tanker. And so I acquired where he was, and we got a, a rendezvous, and we met him head on, and we turned, and we, and we joined up with him. And uh, so we're sitting on his wing, and, and it was an RF-4. And, and I knew one thing about the reconnaissance guys. Now, those guys that flew those long missions... They flew at 500 feet, and they flew wings level, something that we'd never do. I mean, uh, we pulled G's all the time. And all the veins in my lower leg, if I would show it to it, you could tell why. But anyway, we were always janking around all over the place so they could never really track you. These guys would come down at 500 feet, and they'd get going as fast as they can, and they could make a long run out there, click, 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 taking pictures. And we'd go up and watch them sometime at higher altitude, and I said, boy, look at those guys. They've got a whole bunch of balls. But I knew one thing, that that was not a mission that was going to be for field grade or above officers. This is all the company grade guys, the, the lieutenants and captains with uh, second lieutenant navigators in the back. That's who flew these things. So I met this guy head on, he, and he was just coming feet dry, and I joined up with him, and we looked at him, and he looked okay to me. And he said, okay, hold it steady, we're going to take a look at you. And he said he was losing hydraulic pressure, and he had a lot of heat in the back seat. Now, I thought I was talking to the, to the lieutenant or the captain in the front seat to put this in perspective. And I was looking at that captain, the pilot of that thing, not even paying any attention to the backseater. And in this case, the front seater was a general officer, and the backseater was a C&I major. And his name was Bob. 
he was a major and he was a C&I guy. He had to take care of his generals. And that's who was doing all the talking. But I thought I was talking to some captain in the front, not a general and a field grade officer. Okay? <laughs> so we turned parallel to the coast and tried to head down for South Vietnam. And I come in beside him and looked in real close. And I could see up in the nose area he had some fire. And it was burning a little bit, not a bad fire. And when we told him that they were on fire, they pulled out to the side. And they said, okay, they acknowledged the fire and said, okay, we're going to go ahead and bail out. Now, and I don't, you can make up your own mind about this, the motivation. Now, here's a general officer that was on his last mission. He was flying into an area that was totally prohibited for general officers to fly, which was North Vietnam. Because the last thing they want to do is get a general officer shot down as a prisoner of war. But he needed an extra counter, and if he went to North Vietnam, he got a double counter, and he, got, he would get another air medal. Whatever. Anyway, they came out, and they joined up, and they were on fire. A little bit, a little fire, not too bad. And so I said he was going to bail out. So anyway, hey, this is really cool. You know, I've seen a lot of guys bail out and get shot down, but it's been kind of far away. But this time I came out and close and out, backed off the route formation, and we're sitting there. I says, wow, I'm going to see an, a normal ejection out of a fighter. This is really cool. See, I've never seen it up close. And about a minute and a half later, the back seat are ejected. Now, during that minute and a half, they were arguing in the cockpit about where to set the command ejection handle and, and he said the general really didn't want to bail out because, hey, he's going to get in a whole bunch of trouble. <laughs> Tomorrow he's going to go home, and they're going to write a report on him. And now he did something illegal. He's going to lose an airplane. And he's probably really going to get frowned at from the sack guys. And so here's his motivation. He didn't really want to go, I don't think. But anyway, they decided, and they argued about going and so forth. And we're sitting here waiting. You know, they're on fire. Why don't they bail out? They took a long time. And so finally, and this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, the back cockpit, the canopy comes off. <laughs> comes off and it clears the tail really cool. Wow, that's neat. Canopy comes off. And we're about 280 knots under control, just a perfect ideal condition out over the water. And then, and then the back seat fires, and it comes up the rails. And you can see a little rocket motor ignite. The seat comes up perfectly stable. As soon as a little drogue chute opens, it comes out. The guy pitches up on his back. He's on his back. Now the drogue chute pulls out the main parachute, and the main parachute starts to inflate. The seat separates. The seat keeps going. The parachute opens, and there he is. Wow, that's really cool. But I looked back at the front cockpit, and it was full of fire. And the canopy was still on it. And the fire was so intense that the fire was all around him. And it looked like two huge blowtorches down by his rudder pedal welds. And it came through him, and it came out the canopy that was missing in the back seat, and there was fire all the way down across the top of the airplane. And it was actually burning the vertical stabilizer. And here's this white helmet just sitting there, like he just doesn't know what's going on. Now think of the psychology of this. I'm going to play the tape in a second until you can listen to it. But the psychology is, uh, why, didn't he, why, didn't he, why didn't he bail out? You know, what's wrong? How could he sit there? He's on fire. Doesn't he know he's on fire? And, and, and the horrificness of it, you can write that word down. It, it was so profound that I, I got to tell him. It, I got to tell him to bail out. And so you hear on the tape that Dick is hollering, screaming, bail out, strobe one one, bail out, bail out. Just begging him to bail out. And now, and I think he's just sitting there and he won't bail out. And I think, well, what the hell's going on? I know what's going on. I'm too far away. He can't hear me. 
see I'm 30 feet away, but the radio generally goes farther than that. But I'm thinking that, that maybe that's the reason he's not bailing out, is because I'm too far away, and he can't hear me screaming at him, begging him to bail out of this burning airplane. And so I think, well, I've got to get closer to him. And so I drive my old F-100 in as close as I can, and I hit him. Figuratively. I think maybe I hit him. I don't know. But anyway, it got so close that the air pressure rolled the airplane up. And now the airplane made a perfect 90-degree turn and headed right back towards the beach. And I backed off enough. And here's this, this guy. And I, now I back off, and we're still screaming at him to bail out, to bail out. And then at about 500 feet, and, and now it, it's burned so bad that the canopy's all black, and I can't see his, his uh, the white helmet anymore. And it's just smoke coming out of the back. And there's blistering of all the nose area, and, and the liquid oxygen doer explodes, and it blows panels off the airplane. It's just a hideous thing to watch. But it's a captain, right? And the lieutenant bailed out. <laughs> and at about 500 feet, the old Phantom, with smoke pouring out of it, it pitched up like that, and it pitched over. <laughs> and I didn't want to leave him. I just didn't want to let him go. And I came in, and we're heading right for the beach. And Harlan, that was with me in the airplane, he says, Dick, God damn it. And I looked up and at the last second pulled out and watched the airplane crash right on the beach. A handful of years later, I got a call. This is written up in our book, and I wrote it up really graphically. And I got a call from a lady, and he was Bob Worley's daughter. And they called me up, and they said, we're going to go back to Vietnam. And there was a lot of people that lost their husbands or fathers in Vietnam, and they wanted to go back to the place that they died. And there was a big, big, there was a group of people that were going to go back, and they wanted to know where he died. Now, I didn't remember that exactly where it was. So I got my old maps out, and I tried to look at the area, and, and I knew what they wanted. She was going to go back there, and she needed to say, this is the place that my dad died, and stand there and have closure. Now, although I didn't know exactly where it was, I made up a story about where it was. And I crossed my fingers, and I said, God, I hope they don't find out anything different. But I made my best guess. They went to Vietnam, and I said, drive down this little road, and there's a little fishing village, and if you turn right... I said, within maybe 400 yards is where your dad hid on the beach. And so they went down there, and they built a little monument of rocks. And she sent me a nice photograph of the two, his two daughters hugging each other, and they told me thanks. Now, later on, after listening to this tape, I heard in the background the lacks of the range and bearing of actually where it was. I said, ooh, this is going to be embarrassing. So reluctantly, I went and plotted it. And, and I was close. If they'd have turned left from the village 400 yards instead of right, it would have been the right place. But for all practical purposes, it served its purpose. Let me see if I can. Uh, you're not going to be able to understand this because there's a lot of people talking. But you can, you can hear the intensity of this kid that's screaming on the radio for this guy to bail out. And now that you know the circumstances, maybe you can appreciate in, in, in the, you know, the flavor of what's going on. Roger, uh, we just took a hit over the Cape Cod area. We're headed to Channel 77. We're climbing up to uh, flight level 200. Uh, 
Okay, what's happening here is that the recorders that the missies carried, we can hear our interphone and also we can hear the radio transmission. So whatever goes into our headset is being recorded. Now I play a little bit of this so you can hear all the confusion and stuff. Now I'm going to fast forward to the time that they've been told they're on fire and that they're, and I'm waiting for them to eject. And there would be a, a big pew, and the radio, for some reason, tells when they eject, and the, gem, and the general is beginning to be emulated. You know what emulation means? Okay. Do the back shooters, back shooters out, they got a good shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're watching a guy on fire. Job one one, bail out, bail out. Job, this is Misty, bail out, bail out. One job. Misty, stay with him, trail. Please, I'll go back to the back seater. Okay, stay with the back seater. Job one one, bail out, bail out. sad thing that happened on this thing is that the water boy, one of the radar sites, called and says, he says, Missy, go back and check and see if there's any chance of survival. And I don't want to take your time, but later on in the tape, the Misty comes back and says, negative survival, negative survival. But the strange part of it was that everybody was interested in this crash site. Most of the crash sites I've seen, they just write it off. They don't even go to bother. But all of a sudden, they're setting up perimeters and medevac were coming in and out. And I thought that was really strange for some reason. And then we went out to get the backseater that was still hanging in the parachute, and we shot up a sandpan that went out to pick him up. And then he was picked up by the Jolly Green. <laughs> and so we went on our mission, our cycles, and when noon came, we went on back and landed at Phuket. And we taxied in every colonel on the base. Here's these 06s, about a half a dozen of them waiting for us. And we taxied in, and I says, Harlan, 
I says, I don't know what we've done, but we must have really screwed something up. <laughs> Having no idea who it was. And then when the canopy came open, and the first, the first colonel up the, up the stairs was screaming at me. He says, damn it, what are you doing here? Why are you in Phuket? And I'm thinking, isn't this my base? Yeah. I generally come back here. He says, you were supposed to go to Saigon. You were directed to land in Saigon because they want to talk to you about strobe one, one, one. I says, what? And then, the, then it finally dawned on the guy. He looked at me and he says, wait a minute. You don't know who was in that airplane, do you? I says, no, sir. And when he came up and started screaming at me, I says, on the interphone, I says, Harlan, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> and the last thing that I wanted to do was go down some pogue pilot upcountry guy, go down to Saigon and talk to a whole bunch of generals about what happened. Anyway, I had the tape. <laughs> and I gave the colonel the tape. And he says, you got a tape of it? And I said, yeah, it's all recorded right there. And he held it like, wow, I got the tape. And he says, he didn't know what to do with it, so he gave it back to me, thank goodness. <laughs> he gave it back to me and he says, go and get your, in your Class B uniforms. There's going to be an airplane, a scat back coming up that's going to take you down. And all those guys want to talk to you down in Saigon. I thought, oh, my goodness. Now a lot of it made sense. So on the way down there, I played the tape. And I said something on the interphone extremely inappropriate. And so my tape has an 18-second gap in it. <laughs> and, it's, and it's very similar to the 18-minute gap that, that Nixon has. <laughs> and there's only, there's only two people that know what was on that tape. And one of them's dead. And yours truly is the only one that knows what was on the tape, and he will take it to his grave. <laughs> anyway, we went down there. We got to talk to a lot of generals, which I did think was all that neat. But they found out something about the F-4 deficiency and how the canopies come off and so forth that nobody ever knew before. Now, there was a lot of wrecky airplanes that never came back, and only the backseaters got rescued. Nobody had a clue about what happened to the pilots. But they couldn't get out of the airplane. And so in that case. But that was the only general officer to die in the whole tenure combat, in combat. So, anyway, that's about all I have. 